This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Superlight Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step. And the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. You're about to listen to Graham's analysis of the weekend's action in La Liga, starting with the top-of-the-table meeting between Valencia and Barcelona. Disallowed goals, ginger wigs, messy magic. Yep, it's all there. You won't be disappointed. This full episode is free to unlock up to eight hours of exclusive content every month. It's time to become a socio. Sign up now and you get the entire archive of shows, including big interviews with Rafa van der Vaart, Ledley King, Robbie Keane, Kevin Phillips, and on December the 1st, Jermaine Defoe. Patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Welcome to another Big Inside View. We're going to wrap up the weekend's La Liga action and start at the game of the weekend. Last night, Valencia won Barca 1 at the Mestalla, maintains Barca's four-point lead at the top. Graham, we gave this game a big build-up. I thought it was a really intriguing game, if not an explosive game. What were your own thoughts? I think we built it up because of its importance, number one, because probably La Liga hinged on it. If Barca had won, I think that statistically the evidence was gigantic that probably that already meant in November that they weren't going to be caught. So I think it was important that Valencia got some kind of point-scoring result, and I make no bones about admitting that we built it up because there are huge swathes of their play this season that have had me jumping up and down when I watch Valencia. And maybe what you're pinpointing there is in the in the first half it was it was rope a dope. Uh, Valencia couldn't show their personality, couldn't let their their best players thrill. You know, we'll come on to it tactically, but. Whether it affected them that Marcelino was in the stand and Ruben Uria, his, his assistant, was on the touch line, I don't, I don't think so. It shouldn't be that way because the point I want to highlight is that all through I was co-commentating for the World Feed on television, and I made the point very quickly in the first twenty minutes that Valencia were. It was inconceivable to me that the game plan included 
not getting the ball out to Guedes in the first half against a Semedo who a week ago against Leganes looked as if he didn't know what football boots in that round sphere were for. Admittedly, Semedo had played much better in Turin against Juventus, but last week he'd looked so full of doubts and nerves. And therefore, up against Guedes, you thought, well, that's Valencia's key move. Anyway, uh, and in the first half, one of the things that, or two things that stood out that covered up the fact that maybe it wasn't as explosive as you might have liked. And, and, I'm, and I don't even mean by that the, the goal that wasn't. One, it's a long time since Barcelona have played like that, Martin. It, it's, you know, that people will look at probably the Juventus victory, the 3-0 in the Champions League first group game, and say, well, by definition, look at the scoreline or the goals. That was better. I, I, I disagree. Um, that night against Juventus, it took them 45 minutes to score the goal. It was a lovely goal. And they went on to dominate Juventus in the overall 90 minutes. Possibly that was more impressive. It was certainly full of more sort of swashbuckling flair. But the first 45 minutes in the Mestalla is as good, is as efficient and is as hypnotic as Barcelona have played for many, many, many months, certainly this season. And there were, although the structure was different, you know, it would, it would have been utterly prohibido. You know, prohibited under Pep Guardiola to play a 4-4-2 that became, in many instances, a 4-5-1. The 4-3-3 was just absolutely religiously stuck to, unless he maybe went three at the back in a 3-4-3. And yet, there were moments with the tempo of the passing, relentless, the domination of the ball, which it 70-30, despite Valencia's, you know, resurgence in the second half. The stats and the performance and the, the shifting of the ball, um, sometimes in outrageously tight spaces in that first half, reminded me a little bit of, of the Guardiola era. And the other thing that stood out that, to me, helped make it a little bit explosive is, is the Mestalla. We talked about, you know, in the big interview, we try to set a scene as well as simply talk about football analytically. And, and I mentioned Avenida Suecia, which is squeezed between the bar of Manolo Elder Bombo and the front stand of the Mestalla. And I thought that there might be a couple of thousand people squeezed into that tiny space. The cops down there reckon that there were maybe eight or 9,000 people. And, you know, there was no violence. But if any player in an opposition team was likely to be intimidated by an arrival at a stadium anywhere, that was it. And the Mestalla itself was just vibrant and for those who haven't been in it it's stacked upwards it's a very vertical place rather than stretched out like a bowl or an oval and and therefore the noise does seem to rain down upon you and I've seen on radio and television Valencia fans admitting that they don't remember an atmosphere like that in their own stadium for 10 or 15 years and therefore as a spectacle orally it was just it was fabulous. I mean, I agree with you about the vibrancy of Barca's first half play, but I was a little bit surprised at how conservative Valencia were. You know, they had these two banks of four, and then they were trying to play these long diagonals out wide and get Geddes and Soler up the park, but it wasn't really working. Just It was just a bit underwhelming, their first half performance. It didn't work, and then they didn't exhibit their their personality. And I think that one of the things that sticks out, Martin, is that what's excited us about them, about them is that 
several months ago they were in the mire not just financially not just in terms of how Peter Lim was choosing to run the club there's been six managers under Peter Lim and under four of them Valencia have been utterly shambolic and there have been several players who looked as if they didn't care and therefore what we've loved about Valencia isn't simply that there have been occasions when the ball moving from end to end and and finalising the goal has been football at its purest it's been the fact that they're sufficiently resurgent to be challenging for the title. But we, that can't obscure the fact that the the revolution has been lightning fast, that they're still finding their feet as a unit in terms of, ah, we're in this situation, we know what it's like, we know how to cope with it. And if you look at um, you know Condogbia, who's been a standout midfielder, had an awful season last season for Inter, you know, you've got a pair of 20-year-olds um, in Soler and Gedge playing at, at the top of their form for this early in their career. But they are junior. Um, and I, and I, I go back to the fact that Barcelona didn't let them be themselves. On the road, Valencia probably at their best, albeit that they thumped Sevilla 4-0 at the Mestalla. On the road, teams are obliged by their own fans to get at Valencia, which leaves them space, which means that they absolutely strip you bare. They're like piranhas, you know. At home, where they've got to make the play, it's often the case that they're much better in the second half. For example, in the first half of the season, um, Valencia have scored 12 and conceded three. In the second halves, it's kind of all Errol Flynn, end-to-end sort of dashing and, you know, sword play, 20 goals scored and eight conceded. That's a really marked difference between first half play and second half play and so it would prove last night but the key factor if you were underwhelmed I'd argue the key factor was that in order not to have to play the long diagonal balls, in order to work the the ball through the midfield towards Soler or Tegedj the absolute key factor was that Barcelona had to bugger off and leave them alone because in that first half Paulinho was fabulous but Busquets was better it's several seasons since I've seen Busquets play that well for Football Club Barcelona. Intermittently, he's played that well for Spain, particularly under Lopetegui. But I, I just thought Busquets was off the scale, extraordinary, aided by Paulinho with Iniesta quick and sharp on the ball, not doing the recuperating, not doing the asphyxiating, but he didn't need to, given how the Catalan and the Brazilian were playing. That meant uh, Perejo and Condobia were, were struggling to find out where do I go to get, where do I go, if I've got the ball, how do I get any kind of respite? Uh, how do I receive the ball in a space where there isn't one or two or three Barcelona players on me? And that meant that the supply chain that might have been more subtle about how to get the ball out to Gerrison and Soler was broken and, and they didn't understand how to fix it for some considerable time. Why was Busquets so impressive last night? I mean, he seems to be this type of player that if you create the right conditions around him, and we've talked about this before, then he can do what he does best. But what conditions existed last night to allow that performance? A shark smelling blood. Barcelona went into the Mestalla knowing that if they won, that although they were, it would be a secret that nobody dared say out loud, that was the title. You'd have to confess, if I use this phrase that Barcelona played as if they knew they could win the title last night with a victory, that would describe the hand round the throat that they had on Valencia for the 
first 50, 55 minutes. And Busquets, above his judgment and, and his technical skills, is a player of high mentality. And he brought absolutely the best out of himself in terms of positioning, um, timing of tackles, knowledge of when to slow the ball, knowledge of when to try a trick, knowledge of where to lay the ball off to, who to support, which teammates were likely to be most under pressure. In terms of the A to Z of what's made Sergio Busquets a great, we saw it all. And the second part of you know, shark smelling blood is that Valencia know that Busquets is not now and pretty much has never been athletically all that quick. And there's one instance late in the first half which gave you the most glaring proof of how brilliant Busquets had been because this instance was when um, Gedd's got the ball on the left. Busquets was the nearest player to him and he started off on a little run. And it, it, it was phenomenal. It was, it was as if um, Sergio Busquets was on a running track that wasn't allowed to get forward and Geddes was off in the distance like the roadrunner. It was frightening, the disparity in pace between the two of them. And what I mean by that is that in all the other instances where you saw Busquets dominating the ball and making sure that Valencia couldn't do that repeatedly, he knew that if he got it wrong by probably half a foot or a foot, that would be enough for several of his opponents to disappear out of sight before he could get near them. And therefore, I thought that one instance where Geddes did him for pace emphasised the absolute pinpoint perfection of the rest of his work. I mean, I guess for all Barca's possession, they didn't create that many chances, but they did score a goal. <laughs> the only trouble was it, was it was disallowed. I guess we need to talk about that. I mean, for anyone who's not seen it, um, Messi hits a first-time shot from 20 yards and Neto actually seems to spill the ball between his legs and, you know, the ball clearly crosses the line or certainly on video replay, the whole ball is over the line, but the goal is disallowed. It's funny because Neto has been pretty heroic since he arrived, rescuing him from a place on the bench at Juventus. And um, when Valencia announced we're back, it was at the Bernabeu where they drew 2-2. And had it not been for Neto producing you know, some of the most extraordinary saves I've ever seen, um, certainly for a, a new goalkeeper making his debut for a club that signed him and the you know the first big game is at Real Madrid. Um, so for that kind of huge error whereby that left-footed volley, first-time shot from Messi from outside the box, he's, he's it goes at him and he's got his hands out and it kind of, it, it should be like, palm the ball, drops at my feet and then I can pick it up again. So immediately it was a strange kind of technique because I never thought that what you do is you let it, you know, hit your chest with the and you're bringing your hands round the ball as soon as it hits your chest or into your midriff, better to say. And then, but once it once it goes, it shouldn't go through his hands, although he's chosen a strange technique. It goes down and he sort of guddles it as if he was trying to, you know, play juggle a salmon. You know, I went down straight out of the river. Because it was such a straightforward save that I think he was almost thinking about where he was going to distribute the ball and he, he stopped thinking that, about That would explain yeah. a lot. So, so his mind wasn't on the job yeah. you are saying. And, and then once, okay, and then 
if we're personifying it a little bit, I think once the ball drops from the, the palms of his hands, it goes down and seems to have a life of its own. In fact, that's another point. It's like a little puppy running away from him. Well, how did it go through his legs from there? But presumably once he starts paying attention, I think there's a hint of panic. And the more he tries to grasp the ball, the more... But like Roy Carroll is against Spurs, uh, where Mendes strikes the ball from a different sort of postal code and, and it goes wildly over the line and, and, and Roy Carroll um, <laughs> swipes the ball from almost touching the net and the referee doesn't give it. Roy Carroll, at least, at least on that occasion, had the decency to have a guilty look on his face. The brilliance of a Neto, and, and what a fabulously named keeper, isn't it, Neto? Um, it, 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 he should have been holding his head in his hands, although at that stage he'd have probably dropped it. Um, he reacts then brilliantly by flipping, you know, it's a real gymnastic flip backwards to scoop the ball away. And he scoops it away and gets on with his business as if, oh, nothing to see here, that, that didn't go over the line. Not, not a look at the ref, not a look at the linesman. What I was doing on the commentary, though, because as the ball looks to go over the line, because the shot on, you know, from us, it's, we don't, we're looking at it almost um, diagonally, not like the referee, which is straight on, or the or the lino. And initially I thought, I think that's over the line, but I could see that play hadn't stopped and that the Valencia players, the, the visual image for me was that the Valencia players hadn't stood still or slumped their shoulders. They were, they were running around and then the ball was in play. And then I saw Iglesias filling away by the, the referee running away from the penalty box. And I thought, right, the break's on here. I can't understand this. But I took a look at Villanueva and he looked right to his, his assistant. So in my view, it was an assisted decision as it should have been because the referee, I think, has a minor excuse for not seeing it fully because I think Neto, once he turns is in Iglesias Villanueva's way in terms of trying to judge whether the ball's fully over the line or not. And and Messi's shot comes from the edge of the box and therefore the, the lino is kind of in line with him, not in line with the goal line. But Neto sort of juggles about the ball long enough for the assistant to sprint up and get a good view of it. And if you look at his angle, the assistant, and that's why I don't like it in our... Profession Martin, where people talk about refer- the referees at fault and it's Iglesias Villanueva, it's the, it's the Lionel's fault. There's no question about that whatsoever. And if everybody wants the referee to have a guess and go, ah, it looked over to me, well, that's not what the law says. So it's the Lionel's problem, started by Neto's problem. And what I liked a lot was when Messi hasn't had a better look at it than the referee. He comes off at half-time, chewing away at Iglesias Villanueva's ear and the lino, but kind of affably. I've talked to you before about interviewing Messi, and there's always a private joke or a or a, or a Buster Keaton cartoon playing in Messi's head because he's always got this funny, quizzical little smile in his eyes, constantly, apart from when he's pissed off, which I've seen once. Um, and he's, he's, he's walking off, chatting away at the two of them as if he's going... Like, fellas, are you sure that wasn't a goal? Is there any way we can go back and have a look at this again? And the wee quizzical smile on his face, and he's not giving them grief. And then, by the end, skipping a chapter or two, when he's coming off, he's furious because at halftime he's seen the replay. And Jordi Alba, interviewed on the pitch, confirms that, you know, 
part of what's fueled their ire is that they've all supposed Rakitic sees it's a goal because he's the follow-up player. He's running in on the shot and he knows it's over the line. But they've seen the they've seen the replay at halftime in the dressing room, and they're all absolutely furious because it's you know it's distinctly over the line. It's an evident goal. The line was made just a cataclysmic error. And and by that stage, Messi was well pissed off, and there wasn't any friendly tone in his in his discussion with the the officials as they come off. But it was back to the perennial debate about goal line technology, isn't there? I remember there was a big controversy. Was it the Betis game earlier on this year where Suarez had a shot that crossed the line? At, in fact, you know, that's right. I, th- I think Terry Gibson uh, said last night that um, it almost hit the back of the net. <laughs> it was so far in <laughs> that shot, but you know, that, there was a big uproar over that one. And Jordi Alba on the pitch spoke about it last night when he was being asked, "Is VAR going to help?" And and my my memory, uh, Martin, is that while Video assist refereeing is going to be brought in in Spain next season. As we stand, the announcement was that it wouldn't include goal line technology. So when Alba was was asked about last night's incident on 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 the pitch, in the flash interview, he immediately went to this doesn't just keep happening to us. Each of the incidents are completely unforgivable, and his point of view was that the better result cost in the league. I'm not so sure. I think that came at Malaga in a game where they deserve to be beaten. And uh, my point of view is, you know, the the men in yellow made a mistake, but you know, just head down and get on with it, fellas. Let's move on to the second half. The game came alive. I, I think. Well, Valencia came alive, more to the point. They started, they started looking like the team that we've been talking about for the past couple of months. And it culminated in this wonderful goal down the left, where it was Geddes plays in Gaia, a wonderful overlap, and then front post cross and brilliant finish by Rodrigo. The thing that, that was essential was that Valencia upped their tempo, showed a little bit more daring, were just slightly more confident in how they used the ball. I, I don't think there was any kind of gigantic strategic change and it's certainly the case that Rodrigo after the match talked about um, Ruben Uria who was in charge for Marcelino saying impose yourselves, take responsibility, play at a higher tempo, show your footballing character and I, I think as journalists we're often chastised by parts of the football industry if we talk about um, one team wanted it more than the other or um, there were periods in, in the play where there was increased desire. And given that journalists are there to be popped at by people in, in football, often they'll sneer at you by saying, oh, well, what you didn't understand was the, the you know, the tactical niceties or the football's far more complex and trying harder than the other team. Yeah, I was, as you know, I was down in the Nervion in midweek where um, having been 3-0 down, Sevilla not only drew 3-3, but by the end were claiming, Escudero claimed, if there had been five more minutes in this match, we'd have scored a fourth and we'd have beaten Liverpool from 3-0 down. And Guido Pizarro, who scored the equalising goal, um, told me, said more widely in Mexico, but I've interviewed him and he said, listen, we were, we were shameful in the first half. And we just took a look at ourselves at halftime and said, we've been disgraceful. We need to put a shift in. And he said the biggest single thing, not the substitution off of Inzonzi who stormed off away home and the inclusion of Fran Vasquez in between the lines and Banega dropping deep. The biggest factor, according to Pizarro, was we worked our socks off and we outworked Liverpool and that helped make the change 
effective. And you know, it, it was it was startling to hear a footballer say sometimes it's as simple as working harder. And um, that's certainly what Valencia did because, and also they made more of the right decisions, Martin. I, I'm not. I mentioned that I mentioned Geddes in in commentary last night because it's not retrospect Monday morning quarterbacking. Valencia just weren't smart about trying to bully Semedo, who's having a very up and down season. You can see his qualities, but um, he looks injudicious. He looks like a footballer who they've bought, knowing that he has quick feet, that he is pretty lightning fast over the turf and has a goal and an assist in him. But in buying him, I think they must have known that he was still a little bit green, that there is tuition needed. And and right now, I think there have been other gaping areas in Barcelona where there's been more tuition needed. And, and Semedo is lacking in that. And he needed to be targeted. He needed to be bullied. And and the goal is a combination of that. But they had once or twice run at him, passed outside him. And and what you talked about was the receipt by Geddes, I think, again, is, is brilliant. He'd already um, nicked round and caused Stegen to come out um, Smedo, prior to the goal, Smedo's caught upfield. Untiti is the covering defender. Untiti is wildly left-footed. Um, Geddes goes outside him on, on Untiti's right, and therefore the Frenchman doesn't want to make a tackle on his weaker foot. Doesn't just and kind of just shoves his body towards Geddes as if he's going to make a tackle, but then pulls out of it. And luckily for Barcelona, Stegen has seen this happening even before Geddes decides to go past. And he's out and he makes that one-on-one save that, that helps turn the game. But in the instance where the goal comes, when Geddes gets it and receives, he just holds and gives with perfect timing. And what you see is that Rakitic has gone inside, um, either injudiciously or thinking that he might have to protect um, Semedo's inside from Geddes and that just means that Rakitic is in the wrong place because the overlapping run comes from the full back that was Rakitic's man there's a clearly a blame culture in that it's Rakitic who's hauled off not that long afterwards um, for Del Feo but um, the thing I loved best of all was when Geddes just slides the pass perfectly for Gaia Gaia before he's even put his foot on the ball is doing what Neto did yet it works. He's got his mind on other things. He thinks he can control the ball because the pass is perfect. He does so almost without glancing at it. And his eyes are up looking at, is it a cutback or is it front post? And that's that's beautiful. And therefore he makes the right decision because he's filled himself with all the right information. And it, it, was, it was impossible to make a better pass than he did because it's inside Bermalen. It's, it's It must have touched... Testegan's fingernails as he dives out, and yet it's bang on the laces of Rodrigo's boot for it's the really goal. It's really interesting, actually, if you watch a replay of Gaia, as he's making for the byline, he actually spends about two or three seconds, so it's quite a long time in that scenario, like weighing up the pass. He's just he's staring at the goings on in front of him and, and waiting to pick out the pass. You know how obsessed I am, but do you remember the, the big example of that that we wrote about in the book that you published for me? Spain, where it's. Um, France have played a double right back in order to try and clamp down on Jordi Alba. And 
Spain eventually find a way through. Rivière was one of them. Debussy, for sure. I was angry then, and in the, I brought that out in the book, that a good side like France just didn't want to play. They wanted to speculate and hold and play tight and stifle the game and look for a breakaway. And therefore, I loved it when Alba got through in almost the same position in the Euro 2012 against France that Spain would go on to win and Alba would go on to score in the final. He looked up. He looked up once. He looked up twice. I think the third time was when he saw the little chip ball to Xabi Alonso. And and what do we all groan about? We all groan about players who find space and abuse it. And and De La Fale later in the game comes on and does the right thing in terms of setting himself up with space, that most prized commodity in elite level football. And then you know hits hits the first hit the ankles of the first player in front of him about twenty feet away. And, and and therefore, I know what we're both doing isn't simply praising Gaia for having a long look. It's then converting that information into the perfect pass. You know, it, most don't choose to take a look. They're like, oh, I'm here, right? I'll just center it. To soak up all this information and just go, I, I know what I'm doing with this and put it on the blade of grass where it should be. That's top. I mean, and also exposing... Vermalen as well. You know, we talked a little bit about this in the inside view and, and Friday. I think this was his, his first start in two years or something like that, and he, he was always going to be one to watch in terms of possible uh, lapses in concentration. But Rodrigo just gets in front of him brilliantly, and, and it's one 0 He does, I guess. I, I, I have to say that is, I thought Vermalen and the rest of the game was nearly flaw free. Um, he looked like the footballer he was at, at his best at Ajax and Arsenal uh, and for the national team. And that must be one of the most difficult things to defend. And, and the trouble is you're looking foolish. But when the ball has been swept so quickly, so brilliantly down the left, and remember what we've just been saying is that Gaia does have options. You know, he can put it long back post for Zaza. He can cut it back out diagonally in the move that Jordi Alba always looks for Messi arriving on the on the edge or on the penalty spot. Now, he doesn't. I admit he doesn't. But... Vermalen doesn't have time to look behind him the way that um, Gaia's looking up because Vermalen's got to be looking at Gaia all the time. And he, he does get done by Rodrigo. But I'd have to say, when somebody's coming off your shoulder uh, at high speed and one of your teammates, Semedo, has been exposed and, and the player's got space and then it's used brilliantly, I have sympathy for Vermalen in that instance. And I, I, as a coach, I wouldn't have been calling him out. And um, I, I enjoyed watching, even if it's just... A goodbye performance, which, based on how he played, maybe, maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe he should now play more regularly. I'm, I'm, I'm always loath to criticise a coach when we're now not allowed to see enough of training to to, to, to argue. And we could all say, well, Vermalen on reputation should probably play more, but maybe Valverde says, well, look, fella, <laughs> I, I see him training. The answer is no. But on the evidence we saw at the Mestalla in a game of high pace and high importance, you know, 98% of what he did was extremely good. And in terms of a man's dignity and a player's dignity, particularly somebody as intelligent, articulate and committed as him, if that's the way he says goodbye because maybe he goes to January market, then that's a decent way to say goodbye that game, that, that performance and that result, you know? So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. 
That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Let's talk a little bit about the celebration. It's one of the best celebrations I've seen in a while. He dives into the crowd, Rodrigo, and pulls out this ginger wig. So, that, look, the, the minute silence before the game was for Jauma Orti, a tycoon in aluminium who'd made his money and decided to put a lot of it into the club, the club that he loved. And he'd been involved in the 90s as a board member and took over in 2001. And therefore, his presidential reign encompassed two league titles, a European Super Cup and the UEFA Cup. Uh, he left in 2004 because another shareholder, who, who proved to be disastrous for the club, uh, Juan Soler, um, had more money, bought more shares and ousted Jauma Orti. But Jauma Orti was adored by the fans, even though he was wealthy. The things he did and said made the fans at the Mestalla not simply adore him for the fact that this was the golden era in terms of trophies in the entire history of the club, but um, because they felt he was a man of the people. Somehow this this wealthy geezer made the, the Valencia faithful believe that he was in touch with them, that he understood him. And one of the ways in which he did that was by celebrating trophy triumphs wearing an orange wig. And... It had no further significance for the club. It's nothing to do with their history. Um, he just decided one day, um, I think the first time they won the league under Rafa Benitez, to put on this CU Jimmy wig. And um, that became iconic for him. And um, he died last week, aged only 70, um, to the great grief of the Valencia family. Um, because he'd remained a very popular, very likeable man. Um, and I suppose as the club hit desperate times and was bought by Peter Lim and spiralled very, very close to, to bankruptcy and, and maybe not existing, and clearly the heart yearns for what made the heart beat fastest, which was that time that Orti was, was president. So the general word before the game was to ask fans to come along wearing these giant curly orange wigs and and people did so dotting all over the capacity crowd it was a capacity crowd even though the camera shots would have showed you there was a little chunk of of top tier terracing kept unused and i think that's a, a, a sort of safety issue but the poster saying sold out went up for the weekend and there were orange wigs dotted all around the mistaya stadium and what happened was although Rodrigo wasn't, you know, born and brought up. His his development was at Real Madrid, and therefore his affection for Valencia is a latter-day thing. 
But he decided he would buy an orange wig and stow it away with one of the ball boys before the game. And he said to the kid, listen, fella, be at the end that we're playing into in each half, even if you have to swap with a mate, and carry that little wig around in your in your pocket. And if I, if I score, come and find me, because I'm going to wear it in, in honour of Jama Orti. And you can see um, that as he celebrates the goal, looks for the camera, gets mobbed by his teammates, there's a fella, a wee ball boy, waiting for the teammates to, to leave Rodrigo, Thiago Alcantara's cousin, and let him pop the wig on, and he does. And this is where it gets interesting, because the FIFA laws, and as you know, I study them nightly, state that any player leaving the pitch and donning uh, a mask or anything that covers a mask or anything similar which covers his head or his face must be booked. Now, you know, that's a stinker of a law made up by idiots, but I suppose it's got a general purpose in that we would have some sort of vaudeville farce every time a goal was scored if everybody was allowed to do what they want. And um, the TV cameras catch Iglesias Villanueva walking up to. Rodrigo, and he's just about 15 feet away from the edge of the pitch, the referee, with Rodrigo still off the pitch, wearing his um, CU Jimmy wig. And in his hand, Iglesias Villanueva has got the yellow card out. And yet, for whatever reason, and and again, I'm guessing, so I'm not claiming, I'm not saying this is fact, but just as... um, Iglesias Villanueva would go on to deny Valencia a stonewall penalty. And at that stage, I think he has it in his head. We've swallowed a goal. Barcelona are already howling. I'm going to be on the front pages tomorrow. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to swallow that penalty. He swallows the yellow card. He doesn't... Um, he doesn't book Rodrigo in an instance that the laws say he should have done. And, of course, as, as is inevitably the case, uh, Rodrigo gets well and truly um, over the top when Busquets a few minutes later on the pitch and gets booked, rightly so, for a horrible challenge, which would have been the sending off. Now, for whatever reason, and this is where I'm guessing, Iglesias Villanueva is like, I've read all the papers. I know this is on, in honour of Jaume Ortiz, that this isn't just some kid larking about. I'm not going to book him. Because the opprobrium for, you know, you're booking a guy for honouring this great president. And, and that's not a way a referee should be thinking. A referee should be saying, I'm here, I'm paid to do my duty. If I keep interpreting it, then it's not the FIFA laws, it's the Iglesias Villanueva laws. So I thought that was, I thought, I enjoyed the, the, the Rodrigo gesture the same way as you did. But if you go back to the beginning of the season, when Ronaldo scores that outrageously brilliant goal at the camp now and celebrates by doing his Bruce Banner, you know, Incredible Hulk thing, I, I know a lot of people who think that this booking for taking a shirt off is rubbish. But he gets booked a couple of minutes later. Umtiti commits a penalty on him. It isn't given. He gets sent off because it's a simulation in inverted commas and then he pushes the referee and blah, blah, blah. Well, hold on a second. What, what, why not be consistent if a rule is broken? Why not book Rodrigo? So I, I, I think the rule is rubbish. I enjoyed the celebration. 
And if I was Rodrigo, I'd have taken that booking for the for the wig and, and then not kicked Busquets <laughs> later and stayed yeah, on the pit. Yeah. But um, long and short, the referee screwed that one up royally as well, Martin. Absolutely ponied it. In games that Barca are are behind in chasing, you're always kind of waiting for a moment of of messy magic. And you know he produced it with about eight minutes to go with this wonderful little nine iron over the top for for Jordi Alba <laughs> to run onto. It was just a uh, it was a great moment. It was kind of sweet because you know of all the things that we know about this wee fella who's finally renewed until 2021 with a buyout clause that I know that. Paris Saint-Germain can find down the back of the sofa. Only £700 cheap at twice the price. It's not for today, but there's an issue that people aren't talking about, Martin. And and we need to, in that Messi's not scoring anymore. Or certainly not at the rate he was at the beginning of the season. He looked completely unstoppable. And and the goals have, have dried up, and they've dried up because the ridiculous situation up front for Barcelona that I'll be writing about today. And we will come back to that too. But as you're, as you're waiting to see, can the league leaders even this out? Or have we got the result, a 1-0 win for Valencia, that just about everybody else was was hoping for? Particularly Atleti and Real Madrid, so that they could haul back Barcelona and, and statistically look at it and say, this is a gap that we can overturn, not a gap that we've never overturned in the history of La Liga. And I can't, I can't speak for you, but I, I wasn't certain on the way the game was going that Messi was going to be the goal scorer. It didn't quite look like that night. You pointed out that the shot goes in, that Neto fumbles, but, you know, it's, it, it isn't a shot that was going in of its own accord, Messi style. And therefore, the the assist is, is, is fabulous because it shows something about Messi's generosity because he assisted the guy who's most assisted him this season. So it was a Chuckle Brothers to me, to you moment. Um, Alba has created four goals for Messi this season. Alba's also in brilliant scoring form, having it um, won in each of the two Spain internationals in that uh, last FIFA break. And I, I think you know that, but for socios, it's probably worth mentioning that I've interviewed Alba on this subject before, and as he was growing up, he wanted to be Risto Stoichkov. He saw himself as an inside forward. He saw himself as being the guy who grabbed the glory, um, creating and making goals, playing off a striker. He never wanted to be a left-back. And we know already that he's fabulously agile in front of goal. He's not only a very good athlete, but he's got a brilliant left foot. And at Valencia, where, of course, he he was rescued because Barcelona kicked him out of the cantera um, as a kid, saying, you're too small. How ironic is that, given... You know what's going on at Barcelona at that time with Messi and Iniesta coming through, and Alba gets released and goes to Cornea, a, a small sort of semi-pro club um, on the edge of of Barcelona, and and it's there as a winger that Valencia spot him, and he's a winger at, at Valencia for a long time until I think Unai Emery converts him into into a fullback. But I've seen him in UEFA games for Valencia before he left, playing at number ten. And, and playing brilliantly at 10. I, I think this is a footballer who's subdued essential parts of his nature in order to, to stay a fixture in potentially the best team there's ever been and to stay a fixture for Spain while winning big trophies. And, and we saw it in the finish, I think, because the pass is, the pass is extraordinary and it should almost be a 50-50 goal between Messi and, and Alba because to, to be able to put the ball to exactly the right position 
over the top of a defender from that distance, I'd, I listen. I don't think it should be humanly possible. And, the, and I, you used the nine iron. I would compare it to you know if he was a quarterback, you know he'd be he'd be being paid sort of hundred million a season instead of just fifty million a season. And Alba's technique is the same as we talked about, Gaia. He's he's looking at the ball. He's not looking at Neto. He's looking at the ball as as he's sort of kung fu kicking it, flying in with his left foot outstretched and volleying it volleying it past the Brazilian. The technique's gorgeous. And in slow mo, you see eyes on the ball. And I don't think there's any sort of twelve, thirteen year old socios. So we're probably preaching to converted. But if any of the socios have got kids or coach, teach them that. Eye on the ball. Eye on the ball. Let's talk a little bit about Messi's contract then. Obviously, I think was it Friday that was formally announced after quite a, a long period where it's become a bit of a sideshow. But the details are that they basically bumped up the buyout clause. I think when it was initially agreed in July, there was a 300 million euro buyout clause, but definitely in response to, to Neymar to PSG, they bumped that up to 700 million. They've, they've learned um, that clearly is outside the reach of of any club, irrespective of the way in which PSG have been apparently have been allowed to run a coach and horses through the financial fair play guidelines. I think that you know it's important that they didn't screw that detail up. We, we did. I did criticise Barcelona for not understanding when Neymar said, I'm increasing my buyout clause by about 20 million. I was critical of them not realising that that was an indication that he was off. And therefore, to do that, to, to make sure that detail is, is right in Messi's contract, fair play. But the, the key thing is that he signed it. Because if he signed it, he intends to stay for a good chunk of it. That, rather than the actual fact of ring-fencing him financially, the idea that he's willing to commit to the club, that his discrepancies with the board, that his worries about team planning have been set aside, those are the important things. Because when we talked about it, I found it hard to imagine him playing at Chelsea or at Manchester United or Paris Saint-Germain. Even at Manchester City, I found it a little bit hard. There's, there's a new Messi child coming along, third. He hasn't got other languages. He does genuinely feel, if not in debt to, to Barcelona, tied to, to football club Barcelona. And therefore, impossible that he moved in, in anger or in ambition or because the money at Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain was extraordinary. No, impossible, no. But on a free the money could have been so ridiculous that maybe there was an argument about do we think about it, all that kind of... Now that he's tied to the club, Martin, he's not going anywhere else in his next club as Newell's old boys, hopefully when he's 35 or I don't know what age. So I, th- I think that the buyout clause is, is, is good housekeeping, is the right thing to do, but I, I feel that what secures him now is, is his commitment, is his goodwill. And... Um, so I would have been, I would have been addicted to finding out about him at a new club. I would have found that a brilliant story. I would have chronicled it, and it would have transfixed me to see what more can he prove. How would he cope with a change of climate or culture or language? How would other players around him blossom or not? But that story isn't going to come to us now. I don't think that story will happen for us when he goes to Newell's and Old Boys and not before. 
And selfishly, I'm pleased about that. I'm not a Barca fan, but he lives and works in my city. I occasionally get to interview him. And when I go and watch him, it's like no other experience I've ever had in my professional career. So selfishly, I'd admit that I'm pretty pleased. And I believe the club are looking at a kind of lifetime contract for him beyond that, similar to the one Iniesta signed earlier this year. They are in the right to do that. Um, you know, what that means. I mean, they've got a, a variety of players tied on good money because now the Barca Legends brand and the Legends football matches are, are, are pretty important. And they're involved in, in sending them to Malaysia or Saudi Arabia or Australia or I don't know where, India to play games, to, to build the fan base to, let's all say it together, make money. So um, what else would you do with Leo Messi except say to him, when you're gone, when you're in um, Rosario, when you're looking for something to do, because he isn't going to coach, maybe coach kids, but he's not going to be a president or a first team trainer or anything like that. Stay associated with us. You we and you can can make great bundles of money together across the rest of your career. What's not to like, Martin? Just to return to La Liga, I just want to maybe wrap up another couple of games. Real Madrid 3, Malaga 2, Ronaldo scored a late winner. The Barca-Valencia result was probably quite good for Real and Atleti, who won 5-0 against Levante. But Madrid still aren't really clicking, are they? There was a host of problems in that, um, although Keller was back and fit, he was in the bench, and Kiko Garcia showed that it's been evident for weeks that he is not at or anywhere near at Kayla Navas's level. And there are goalkeepers who like competition. The year that Claudio Bravo and Ter Stegen spent fighting for first-team place in the first season was fascinating. And in, in the British culture, I'm much older than you, but even in your time, in the British culture it was sneered upon to rotate goalkeepers. The only time that I can remember it in my youth was when England managers, a succession of them, couldn't choose between Clements and Shilton and they began to play alternate games. In the continent, it's it's often the case that they say, we'll buy a second-choice goalkeeper or two goalkeepers who are equally good and we'll make them compete to push their level by giving one of them the cup games and one of them the league games. And And... You know, not that long ago, I remember that still being utterly ridiculed in Britain by the industry, by um, the media, by fans. And they were wrong. And, and you know, this was right. It, it, it in, in goalkeepers of character and ability, it's a stimulus. You have to keep looking over your shoulder. And unfortunately, what we saw when uh, Kiko Casilla let in, you know, an awful, awful goal as, as bad an error as Neto made from Chori Castro's shot and the ball is allowed to bounce over him. We, we saw in Kiko Garcia somebody who's like, ah, Kaler's back, I'm out. Rather than Kaler's back, I'm going to fight for this place. I'm going to keep him on the bench. And and that was a sad moment for me because Kiko Garcia is agile, is loyal, is, is a decent keeper. But to see him shrivel up under the spotlight, I, I didn't enjoy. There is a problem in that Madrid are lopsided, just as um, Danny Carvajal is back and playing brilliantly. Marcel produced an assist at the weekend, but isn't right. There's something short. There's something not, I, I don't know, functioning in his game. And that's a huge problem um, for Madrid. They're a little bit error prone at the back. Other things are gently coming together. And I have faith that they're going to wage war on the top two. 
and I have faith that this is going to get better. But they struggled to beat a Malaga side who looked doomed to relegation and who made it a right good contest. And as far as Atleti that you mentioned, maybe it's exuberance or maybe it's just my big mouth, but I'm going to take the chance to say I'm really good at this. All season, I've been warning people that, that it's key that the absence of Kevin Gamero, who can play as an out-and-out number nine, despite his diminutive stature, and that that is what's been bugging Griezmann. Griezmann, across his career, has made it clear that he doesn't like being the nine, or playing, running into the number nine position, alternating with the out-and-out centre-forward. Yeah, fine. Carrying the responsibility of the line leader... No, thank you very much. Gamero, injured and recuperating during the preseason, slow to get back, slow to be trusted by Cholo Simeone. But it was blindingly clear that A, he needed to be the number nine for Atleti, and B, that Griezmann would find space and form and assists and goals when Gamero was in front of him. And he was playing in the in the zone, not an out-and-out out ten, in the zone from left to right across the pitch behind the striker and since Gamero came back we've had Griezmann scoring that outrageous overhead kick in midweek against Roma then setting Gamero up for a goal and if you take the trouble to look at the Levante game and you see that Gamero scores the first two and the second one set up by Griezmann Griezmann scores the next two the first of his set up by Kevin Gamero well I rest my case and I'm repeating this because said it over and over again in print and in, in commentary that it's it's small details like that that bring the best out of Griezmann. Once Griezmann is scoring, the midfield and the defence have less pressure on them. They play better as a result. And and, and football, hey, Presto, becomes something of a simple game. They still aren't going to be good enough to win the title, but they are now, if they keep everybody together, and I stress that phrase, going to be good enough to wage war on anybody who's unfortunate enough to cross their path. The trial is, Gamero has had his faith in Cholo Simeone singed a little bit by the last few months. He felt he was ready sooner than Cholo Simeone felt. And I know that Valencia are toying with perming between trying to buy Gamero um, at Christmas time or Sandro Ramirez from Everton. Sandro Ramirez looking more likely to be the guy that they can get. He's not having a happy time at Everton. I think it's a deal that could be made. Valencia do want Gamero. That would be an extraordinary signing by Valencia. But, I mean, not on its own, but potentially a signing that took them closer to being able to win the championship. And it's key to recognise for everybody, Martin, that Gerrish played and helped make the goal last night with a stress fracture in a metatarsal bone in his toe. And took a pain injection to play and it's a it's a fissure rather than an outright fracture and therefore the recuperation time can be a little quicker if he's operated on and he's being operated on today now that means that they've got Simone Zaza who has a partial tear in his meniscus and and you saw him hurtling about last night probably more useful to Valencia in his closing down than he was in his efforts on goal and I want to finish by saying that we talked about Suarez and I talked about the way in which up front things are disastrous for Barcelona in that they've chosen, they've pacted with Suarez because he wanted to see Uruguay through to the 
World Cup finals that he didn't operate on his meniscus, which needs an operation. Keyhole surgery and an interview during the international break when Suarez didn't play for Uruguay because the Albi Celeste were already qualified for Russia. He admitted that it's probably quick keyhole surgery and a four-week recuperation. And Suarez wasn't willing to do that and worries a little bit about whether maybe the length of time for him to be back sharp might be still longer than that. So they're doing this programme whereby, like with Ledley King or Pomegranate, they're allowing him to train a little bit less so that he conserves the meniscus. But what we're seeing is Suarez having gone from being playing in the in the Tridente, that, that Neymar Messi Suarez front three, the most feared in the world, where it was simply a circus of tricks and assists and movement and intelligence and, you know, the three musketeers, to now playing up front on his own at a point when in his Barcelona career he's never been slower, never been less sharp, and when he knows deep in the back of his mind that he's got a meniscus injury that could give way at any time. And frankly, even though he got two shots on target last night, it's a pathetic sight. And Barcelona have chosen, he and Barcelona have chosen incorrectly. There's no question whatsoever that, particularly when the international break was two weeks nearly where Suarez wasn't going to be playing, that keyhole surgery should have taken place. And the same goes for Zaza, who intermittently limped around the pitch last night, collapsed on the floor in, in exhaustion, but holding the knee where the meniscus problem is again last night. And I think they've made the wrong decision. And I will be very interested, now that they've lost Gedge, who'll be replaced by the United player on Andreas Pereira on loan. He'll be playing, you know, non-stop now. How long has Zaza got before he's got to accept keyhole surgery? I believe he was limping at um, the end, wasn't he? Last night. Yeah. Horrendous. He was limping around in between sprints from about an hour in. And at the end, he was hobbling. And and Rodrigo was taken off rather than Zaza. I, I didn't click it immediately. Rodrigo was taken off because the incident whereby he'd nearly been booked, he was then booked in Busquets. And clearly what Ruben Uria and Marcelino were deciding between them was like, we're going to save Rodrigo for his own good, but at the expense of Zaza's knee. And if Zaza makes it to the end of December, when Valencia can buy a player that will supplement Santimina and Rodrigo and allow them to have keyhole surgery on Zaza, I'll be very surprised. You know, for him to limp around that long, boy. But it was brave, brave of Gedge too. And um, although your proposition at the start was that it, it might not have been explosive, I thought it was a fabulous night of football. It had everything, including ginger wigs. Who could ask for anything more? Thanks, Graham. Next month's Social Big interview is with Jermaine Defoe, and it's one of the best we've ever recorded. Sign up now and that full episode will drop into your app on December the 1st. Plus, you'll get all our archive shows. Every month, the deal gets better. Patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Listen up, I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! 
Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. Hm. Instacart for the win.